It is the Remnant Warrior here from Kingdom Productions and Publishing. And I just want to welcome all of you who don't already watch this channel on a regular basis. I want to let you know that we upload new content several times a week, but at least every week. So you don't want to miss out when we upload something new thank you all in advance for your subscription i love each and every one of you until next time god bless you all i honestly don't like to to bring this message i haven't given it in a couple of years um but we're gonna be talking about crucifixion and um, I want to just give you a heads up that um, some of the things we're going to be talking about are quite disturbing this evening. And that's why I don't like to give this message. About a year before Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, came out, um, I remember seeing the trailer, thinking how interesting it looked, and I was really looking forward to it. So I decided I was going to do a study on crucifixion, the ancient practice. And um, so I read some books, but I spent most of my time studying um, the primary documents, ancient, ancient literature, and what they had to say about scourging, crucifixion, the entire process. And I have to admit it was the most disturbing study I've ever done. Um, there were several occasions when I just had to fold the books up and walk away because it, I was just too troubled by what I was reading. Um, but it did bring me to a new appreciation of what our Lord uh, endured for us. And so I'm going to share some of that with you this, this evening. Um, and I do think that it will bring a, a new, um, deep appreciation for the profound love that God has for us, um, as, because we'll gain some fresh insights into some different passages in the Bible. So follow me as we go back into the past. Um, we begin with a guy named Cicero, and Cicero was a Roman statesman, um, and uh, Cicero called uh, crucifixion that most cruel and disgusting penalty, the worst extremes of tortures, and the terror of the cross. Um, when he wrote in the first century, he said that Romans should never have to fear being crucified, and never even as much as hear the word crucifixion, much less ever witness one. So we're going to get an idea of what crucifixion was all about in the next few moments. We start with the origin of crucifixion. Now, um, we don't know exactly where and when uh, crucifixion began. We know that we can go back as far as the 5th century before Christ when we see the Persians were crucifying people. Uh, in the 4th century BC, Alexander the Great performed 2,000 crucifixions at one time. And a very powerful uh, Roman statesman named Crassus defeated Spartacus uh, in the Servile War and nailed 6,000 prisoners along the Appian Way in the 1st century. So what did a crucifixion look like? Well, we start off with pre-crucifixion torture. 
Um, this happened a lot of times. It didn't, probably didn't happen all the time, but probably on most occasions there was torture that preceded crucifixion. This involves, according to a number of ancient authors, such as Socrates, Plato, Herodotus, Josephus, Dionysius, Livy, and Philo, they talk about whips, burning with fire or hot irons, mutilation. Uh, in the middle of the second century, a uh, historian named Lucian uh, spoke of a man who was whipped, his eyes were put out, and his tongue cut off before being crucified. In the middle of the second century, there's a story called, uh, or a Christian document called the Martyrdom of Polycarp. Polycarp was probably a disciple of the Apostle John. And um, so he was martyred, and this is an accounting of that uh, martyrdom. And it wasn't so much about him at this point, but they talked about the flesh of those being scourged was so torn by whips that veins and arteries became visible. Josephus, a Jewish historian who wrote at the end of the first century, talked about a man who was whipped until his bones were seen. And on another occasion, he talks about men who were whipped until their intestines were exposed. Philo, still another uh, Jewish historian in the early part of the first century, spoke of uh, Jews who were to be executed and that they were tortured between 6 a.m. and 9 a.m. Now it's interesting, uh, when you watch the Passion of the Christ, you see how long you know, Jesus was uh, scourged and how long the torture went on for. And uh, you know, a number of people commented to me when the movie came out that that just seems impossible, a person could endure something like that, and it would seem that way. But then Philo does mention how Jews were brought into the re arena at 6 a.m., tortured, probably not for the entire three hours, but between uh, 6 and 9 a.m. they were uh, tortured in all sorts of ways. And then at 9 a.m. they were dragged out of the arena and crucified. Now what would this kind of torture do to an individual? Uh, Dr. Fred Zugaby is a forensic examiner from Columbia University. He did a study on the pathological effects of scourging and crucifixion and he said that this would uh, result in, and I quote, exhausted, shivering, severe sweating, frequent seizures, and intense thirst. Uh, speaking of the crown of thorns, he says that given the complex distribution of nerves in the head, the crown of thorns would have produced the kind of pain felt when nerves are touched by a dentist drill. Now this was just the pre-crucifixion torture. Then we get into the crucifixion itself. So we start off with what did a cross look like? Uh, now, probably most of us during our lives have had the Jehovah's Witnesses come to our door on a Saturday morning and um, they like to talk about different things and one of the things they'll bring up is, well, you know, Jesus wasn't crucified on a cross like is depicted in uh, paintings. It was on a stake because the Greek word that's used there means stake. Now, most of the JWs who come to your door have never studied Greek. They're just repeating what the Watchtower has taught them. It is interesting to note that the Greek word that is used for cross in the New Testament is zulon. And zulon can mean stake. Uh, but what's interesting, zulon just means anything that's wooden. It's not referring to the shape of the object, it's just talking about what it's made of made of wood. Let me just give you a couple of examples. 
In Mark 14, 48, at Jesus' arrest, the crowds came to arrest Jesus with swords and clubs, zulon. In Acts 16, 24, Paul and Silas were thrown into prison and their feet were placed in stocks, zulon. In Revelation 22, we hear about the zulon, or tree of life. So it, again, it has nothing to do with the shape of the object, it just has to do with what it's made of. And so when the New Testament talks about the cross, it's just talking about something that's made out of wood. So do we know what the actual shape of a cross was like? Well, in the first and second centuries, we have at least three uh, pieces of literature. Uh, we have what's called the Epistle or Letter of Barnabas. Um, it's attributed to the Apostle Barnabas. It most, almost certainly was not written by Barnabas. Um, but it is uh, some literature that was written at the end of the first century. And in there it says that a cross was shaped like the Greek letter Tau, or the English T. We also have Lucian in the middle of the second century, and also Artemidorus, um, who mentioned crosses being shaped like the letter T. In the second and third centuries, we have gemstones with engravings of Jesus on the cross, and it depicts a cross like a T. You have the cross beam there. Um, oh, thank you. Um, we also, uh, so those are some things there. There's graffiti that's dated to the first half of the third century. And that depicts Jesus uh, on the cross, and there's a cross beam. Now, um, in The Passion of the Christ, we, and in the more recent movie, The Son of God, um, and in other movies, you see uh, Jesus' feet being placed on a, a little footrest there that they're nailed into. But um, in reality, we really don't have any um, ancient sources that mention this footrest. So uh, victims were crucified in, in different ways to the cross. There probably wasn't just uh, a single way. Um, some think that a person's legs were, were straddled. They straddled the cross and then their ankles were nailed uh, directly to it. Uh, now, a colleague of mine, Greg Manette, is doing his doctoral dissertation on the ancient burial practices of Judaism, and uh, perhaps he can uh, comment on this as we get into uh, this weekend in the conference tomorrow. Um, if the Shroud of Turin is authentic, and there seems to be some signs that it is, but if it is authentic, then probably what happened in Jesus' case is that they placed one foot over the other, bent his knees up, and put, placed his feet flat on the cross, and then placed the nail through instep comes out the, the bottom of the foot into the instep of the one underneath and out his heel directly into the cross. Now, I mentioned nailing. Um, we do have the skeletal remains of a crucified victim who were discovered in 1968, a guy named Yehohanan, and his nail is still embedded in the ankle. Now, uh, Greg has told me, and he'll talk about this more tomorrow, that they've actually found remains of some other crucified victims. Uh, so it's not just that one, there's some others. And um, so they did use nails. We do have many ancient sources that discuss nailing to the cross. Um, I, I remember counting 16 or 17, 18 different sources. And only one mentions a victim uh, being bound to the cross with ropes, but it says that this was a practice uh, in Egypt. 
And the Gospel of John mentions nails in the crucifixion of Jesus. People were, I, I mentioned how uh, there's different ways of crucifying people. We do know from the various reports that uh, people were crucified in different positions. In the first century, uh, there was a guy named Seneca. He was a, a Roman lawyer and philosopher, and many would consider him to be Rome's greatest mind in the first century. And Seneca writes, and I quote, I see crosses there, not just of one kind, but made in many different ways. Some have their victims with head down to the ground. Some impale their genitals. At the end of the first century, the Jewish historian Josephus uh, mentioned uh, uh, how people were crucified in different positions. Uh, around the time of the fall of Jerusalem, uh, in just between, say, 68 and 70, um, he says this uh, when they were capturing Jews and, and killing them. And I quote, the soldiers, Roman soldiers, out of rage and hatred, they bore the prisoners, nailed those they caught in different, in different postures to the crosses by way of jest. And their number was so great, about 500 a day, that there was not enough room for the crosses and not enough room for the bodies. Missed a slide there. Crucifixion was an unspeakably painful process. For one, um, studies on cadavers have shown that uh, the nail probably was not put through the palm, as we see depicted in medieval paintings. And it was probably put through the wrist. And you say, well, now, wait a minute. Uh, in the Gospel of John, it talks about nails going through the hands of Jesus. Um, so would that mean the Gospels were wrong? No, because the Greek word, hair, um, for that is translated hand actually means anything the lower part of the arm so it could have been anywhere there but most people think that it is probably here around the wrist and if you take your thumb and you kind of press in and move it around there you'll feel like this uh, um, numbing feeling uh, it's that funny bone and you know how you hit your elbow sometimes and ah it just sends a jolt through your arm well, the actual a nail going through and rubbing up against, brushing up against that nerve would be like taking a pair of pliers and putting on that funny bone and just crushing it. Uh, the word excruciating actually comes from the Latin meaning out of the cross. Now, probably what happened on, um, is that on the cross beam, you would have the arms that are stretched out this, in this way. Um, they probably were not at a 90 degree angle like this. They were probably angled more at like a 45 degree angle. And the reason being is studies that have uh, been done with volunteers in a controlled situation and without nails, of course, um, show that people hanging in this kind of position, and also the Germans when they tortured prisoners during World War II, they would uh, hang a prisoner like this um, and after, uh, you, you just couldn't breathe that well. So they find that if it's 45 degrees or less like this, um, the, the, the muscles that you use to inhale and exhale, they're different muscles. Um, and it is easier to inhale than it is to exhale. And so what ends up happening when you're hanging in this kind of position, and when you're put up on the cross, 
the, the nail through your feet is going to hurt a lot. And so you're just going to hang to take the pressure off the nail. What will happen then is when you're in this uh, down position, um, breathing is very shallow. And so it's more difficult to exhale. And so you have a carbon dioxide buildup in your lungs. If you don't get rid of it, you will go into convulsions, painful convulsions. So what the victim would do in order to expel the carbon dioxide is to push up on his feet, pull up on the nails on his, in his hands, exhale, and then go back down in the down position. And there'd be very shallow breathing for a while. And then they'd have to go back up again, exhale, and come back down. So you can understand uh, why uh, uh, the Gospels mentioned that in order to expedite death, you would break the legs. And that way, uh, you couldn't push up for, uh, to expel the carbon dioxide and you would die uh, from those painful convulsions from carbon dioxide buildup. You would also have severe muscle cramps as a result of the uh, uh, torture that was done to the body. And then because of the scourging, um, you'd have all these open, uh, gaping wounds um, and even if you were just up on the cross without scourging, you would have insects, but with the open wounds, you would have annoying insects even uh, more. Victims were not inactive while on the cross. I mentioned the pushing and pulling that was going on. And you have uh, the Gospel of John who says that in order to expedite death, um, they would uh, smash the legs, break the legs, and they didn't have to do this with Jesus because he was already dead when they came to him. The Gospel of Peter, which is a pseudepigraphal book um, uh, that was written later on, probably sometime in the second century, um, that mentions about the breaking of legs. So at least what these do is it shows us that this was a practice that was going on in the first century, that in order to expedite death, they would break legs. And again, this makes more sense in, in terms of uh, the process of death uh, on a cross, what caused the death on the cross. It wasn't a matter that you were going to bleed to death. It was you were going to die of asphyxiation. So you can imagine after the scourging and all the torment and brutal treatment to the person who was on the cross, they would be in pretty bad shape. And after being, uh, once they were put on the cross, Seneca, I mentioned him a few moments ago, uh, he described crucified victims as follows. He said, they had battered and ineffective carcasses, maimed, misshapen, deformed, nailed, and drawing the breath of life amid long, drawn-out agony. Sometimes brutal treatment was dished out to victims while on the cross. Nero, uh, the Roman emperor uh, in the 60s, he crucified Christians, the Roman historian Tacitus reports, he crucified Christians and then he lit them on fire at night on their crosses to serve as lamps in his gardens. In the last, another ancient historian reports that in the last quarter of the first century he said that real criminal, uh, he, he tells a story about a, a a play was going on in an amphitheater and in order to make it more entertaining and more realistic when it came time to portray a vic uh, uh, the, the heroes being crucified they actually brought a criminal into the theater and crucified him there in front of everyone and then they set a, a bear 
on the guy who tore the guy off the cross and just tore him to shreds while he was on the cross. Josephus reports of a particularly brutal treatment during crucifixion. He says, for they, for they were whipped with rods and their bodies were torn to pieces. They were crucified while they were still alive and breathed. They also strangled those women and their sons whom they had circumcised as the king had appointed, hanging their sons about their necks as they were upon the crosses. In addition to all the physical pain that was experienced while on the cross, crucifixion also involved dishonor. And this was big in the Middle East, as it would be today, because the Middle East is an honor-shame culture. We don't really have that in Western culture, but in the Middle East it's that way, and it was certainly that way in Jesus' day. So first there was the humiliation of the victim. Um, the crucified were almost always crucified naked according to Melito. And it's really interesting, in the Old Testament, in the book of Esther, it talks about how you would lift a person up higher in order to uh, dishonor them more. And we even find this in Roman literature. But in the book of Esther, Haman built gallows to uh, hang Mordecai by, and the gallows were 75 feet tall. Iamblichus, uh, in the first century BC, talked about mocking victims on the cross. Uh, there was King Janaeus, he took a, a, one of his victims, crucified him, and then threw a banquet in front of the cross, celebrating this guy's death. A lot of food, he brought in dancing uh, and, and musicians and singers to celebrate and while this guy was suffering alive on the cross. The crucified were many times denied a, a proper burial. Um, Gentiles would have disembodied, uh, the, the Gentile view was if you were not given a proper burial, um, your spirit would leave your body and uh, the, your disembodied spirit would never be able to rest. The Jew, for the Jew it was different. In Deuteronomy 21-23 it talked about anyone who was hung on a tree was accursed by God. So whether you were a Jew or Gentile, if you didn't get a proper burial, it, it was a bad deal for you. But it, there is good reason to believe that Jesus was given a proper burial. But outside of Jerusalem, many times the corpses of the crucified became food for scavengers. Um, in the third century, a historian wrote, Punished with limbs outstretched, they are fastened and nailed to it in the most bitter torment evil food for birds of prey and grim pickings for dogs. So in other words what happened here was a person was put through the most horrible tortures and then the most painful of deaths in full public display in nudity was mocked while in intense pain his posterity sometimes eliminated before his eyes he was refused burial often and his body left for scavengers it was the ultimate disgraceful death. Who was crucified? Well, crucifixion was normally reserved for slaves, the worst of criminals, rebels of the Roman state. Roman citizens were generally exempt from crucifixion, although there are a few rare cases in which Romans were crucified. Slaves had little protection from being crucified. Um, we have a, a report from a, a juvenile 
uh, a, a historian and juvenile wrote about a slave who had informed his master that his sons, the master's sons, were planning to betray his country to an enemy. After confirming the report, the master killed his own sons, freed his slave as the savior of his country, turned around and crucified the slave for being an informer. Cassius Dio um, reports uh, about a slave who abandoned his master who had, who had plotted to kill Caesar Augustus. Um, and, and the plot was made known to Augustus. Uh, so um, the, his, the master was put to death and then Augustus turned around and it permitted the father of the master who had been executed permitted the father of the conspirator to crucify the slave for abandoning his master, even though he had rescued Augustus. So slaves just had no rights whatsoever. Um, Cicero reports of a woman who had a slave crucified and had his tongue cut out so that he could not give evidence of his own innocence. Now that leads to the question, was Jesus crucified? We have really good evidence that he was crucified because it appears in multiple independent reports. So we have Paul who mentions it. It's mentioned in the early Kerygma uh, in Paul, say in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, and then we find it in the Gospels. So we do have multiple independent reports. We also have it in unsympathetic reports, um, such as uh, non-Christian sources, like uh, Josephus, Tacitus, and Lucian. Um, it's mentioned in, by Clement of Rome and Polycarp. You've got all four Gospels. You've got Peter. You've got Paul who mentioned it. Uh, the early reports I mentioned Paul and the uh, Kerygma embedded in Paul's letters. So, we know that Jesus was crucified. We know that it was an extraordinarily brutal process that he uh, endured. So, with that in mind, what kind of insights can we gain through this knowledge. I think first of all we can see uh, that we can understand there was some fulfilled prophecy. So uh, Psalm 22 verses 14 through 18 say, um, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. You can understand how the early Christians read that psalm and, and saw how closely that uh, described a crucified victim and viewed that as fulfilled prophecy about Jesus. In addition, uh, understanding crucifixion uh, provides an example for living the Christian life. Uh, we can, in other words, we can read about this in the New Testament and understand how that yields insights about how to live the Christian life. Not that we need to be crucified. Um, so Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2 verse 5, he says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to explain about this attitude, how it was manifested in Jesus. He said, who although he existed in the form or role of God, he didn't regard equality, being equal with God, something that he had to hold on to. But he emptied himself, taking on the form or the role of a servant and being made in human likeness. 
and then being found in, in, in appearance as a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death on a cross. Um, and so God exalted him after that and gave him the title above all titles. And uh, So what's interesting about this is he says he existed in the role of God. He didn't hold on to that role. He gave it up and took on the role of a servant and died the cruel death on the cross. And we're to have the same kind of attitude. What does that mean? Well, if the King of Kings and Lord of Lords can uh, give up the lifestyle of the role of God and take on the role of a servant, then none of us, no matter what our status in life is, none of us is exempt from, um, or, or think that we have such a role that we can't serve others. Uh, Jesus served others in the ultimate sense, and we are called to serve others, and we should, and none of us are exempt from that. Understanding why the gospel uh, was unattractive to many in the first century, we can gain that when we understand crucifixion and how it uh, impacted what, what others' views were. So uh, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 1.23, he says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. So the Jews expected a conquering Messiah. They, they wanted freedom from the Romans. Um, so one who was crucified and under God's curse, according to Deuteronomy 21-23, was just inconceivable to many Jews of the first century. For Gentiles, gods just don't die. Uh, in ancient Greek romance literature, Greek heroes who had been destined for crucifixion were rescued at the last moment. And only one case, uh, in the case of the god Prometheus, was he actually crucified, but he's taken, he's rescued. Uh, before he dies. So um, that when we can begin to see why the cross, why being crucifixion, was a stumbling block for Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Now one who claimed to be the Son of God, Lord of all, coming judge and savior of the world, and yet appeared unable to help himself at the time of his greatest need, and and who required his followers to take up their cross and follow him um, was not something that was going to be attractive to anyone. Uh, people witnessed crucifixions. They knew what it was like to be scourged and then marched publicly through the streets before being crucified naked on a cross and the humiliation and everything involved in it. Um, they feared the cross. They didn't want to see one. They didn't want to think of one. Um, they didn't want to get involved in a movement that could very well mean that you were going to be nailed to one. The sentiment is echoed even today. Uh, the atheist New Testament scholar Gert Ludeman comments, and I quote, What do you think it means to say that Christ died for our sins? Do you think that God sent his son in order to let him die? What picture of God do we project when we say he sent his son to die for us? I think this is a first century myth that makes sense in its historical context, but doesn't make any sense today." End quote. But as we have seen, it didn't make sense to many of those in the first century either. So that brings us to a question, and that is, why did Jesus have to die? Jesus' death by crucifixion was a revolutionary new element in the Gospels. Yes, Jesus was indeed cursed by God. 
This is something that Muslims um, uh, struggle with. It says Jesus couldn't have been the Savior because he was cursed according to what the, the Jews were saying. He, he, was, he had committed blasphemy and um, he was cursed now because he was hung on a tree. Uh, well, it's only blasphemy if what he was saying wasn't true. And yes, we agree he was cursed by God. He did that for us because that curse was meant for us and he took the curse on himself. So being cursed by God was precisely the point. But why do we have the curse of God aimed at us to begin with? Well, according to Paul, we've all sinned and fall short of God's expectations for us. In other words, a God who is all holy cannot overlook our sin and still be just. He might be merciful if he did, but he wouldn't be just. Sin must be punished if God is going to be just. But it was God himself who would bear that penalty. It's like the judge who finds the person for a traffic violation, takes off his robe, and then pays the fine himself. In that way, the judge is both just and merciful. Paul wrote, and I quote from Romans 5.8, he says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In 1 Peter 3.18, Peter likewise writes, and I quote, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. This is why we can't obtain eternal life of our own. If we could get there by doing good deeds, then Christ would have, his death would have been um, needless. Uh, in Galatians 2.21, Paul writes, I am not one of those who treats the grace of God as meaningless, for if we could be saved by keeping the law, then there was no need for Christ to die. But this is not the case. Jesus was crucified to pay the penalty for our sins. As Isaiah wrote hundreds of years before Jesus, in Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, he said, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. It's God's grace, or his undeserved and unearned favor, that allows us to have eternal life. This grace is a free gift that he offers to each one of us for the taking. Eternal life has been paid in full by Jesus. Receiving it's like the, the wedding where you turn to your spouse. I, I, I had my 27th wedding anniversary just a few weeks ago. And on that day, on April 4th, 1987, my wife and I both said to one another, I do. And becoming a Christian is understanding what Jesus did for us and saying to Jesus, I do. I do take you as my Savior, the Lord of my life. I take you to the exclusion of all others. I'm not just trusting you to hedge my bets as one in several others. That would be like a polygamous marriage, wouldn't it? Uh, where we're trusting in Jesus, we're trusting in the prophet Muhammad, we're trusting in um, Hinduism and, and, and Buddhism and trying all these different things uh, and say, we're hoping one of these will work. No, Jesus says, um, he was the way, the truth, and the life, that no one could come to the Father but by him. We're not to hedge our bets. And Jesus said, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And so it's not hedging our bets. It's saying, I do to Jesus. I buy into your program. I'm following you. So the most horrible thing that has ever happened in the history of man, the torture and crucifixion of the Son of God, 
turns out to be the very best thing that could ever happen in the history of sinful man. Jesus died for our sins. In Hebrews 12, 2, it tells us that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning or caring little for its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I'll never forget the scene. It, it's, it's not taken from the Gospels. It's just kind of, uh, you could also kind of call it midrash in, in, in uh, Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, but it's a real touching scene based on this verse right here from Hebrews 12 too, I think, where Jesus is carrying the cross and he stumbles and his mother runs up to him and she says, son, I'm here. And he looks at her and he says, mom, I'm making all things new. And he picks up his cross and he looks forward and marches forward to his destiny. And it's, it just reminds me of this verse that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross and despised its shame. Self-sacrificial self love works to ensure gain for the person it loves. Jesus experienced such joy from knowing that his work on the cross would provide a vehicle for us to know God and that the shame he experienced on the cross meant nothing to him. That's some pretty amazing love that God has for us. So while it's difficult to hear that Jesus went what he went through so that we could have a relationship with God, our hearts not remain heavy over this. Because I know that he had a, a difficult Friday, his disciples had a difficult Friday. And maybe some of you in here uh, in this auditorium or who are watching uh, online, maybe you're going through a tough time right now and you're having a difficult Friday. But Sunday's on its way. That's the beauty of this. It didn't end on Friday. Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday morning. And we've got good historical evidence for that, which we'll be seeing. Because Christ lives, we will live too. There is a resurrection. There is an afterlife. It means that he cares for us. And that helps us in this life and in the next. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for all that you did as we reflect on this Good Friday. We think about what you did for us on the cross. And as my friend Frank Turek said to me a few years ago, if the resurrection didn't happen on Sunday, then Good Friday was just another Friday. But Lord, the resurrection did happen, and we thank you for what you endured for us nearly 2,000 years ago. Blessed be your name. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.